0: Religious people who just didn't seem to get it. Religious people who didn't get God's heart. People who just didn't get what God was trying to do with us on the earth. People who just didn't get what the message of the scriptures really was. Even their precious law. They missed the boat completely on what that was about. And the reason why Greg and I have been speaking to this parable and why Brooke Turner brought his message this morning is that 2,000 years after Jesus shared that parable and spoken to these issues, we're still trapped in the same problem, it would seem. We're thinking about it all wrong. We're still thinking about God, his kingdom, and ourselves Wrong. I probably can't encourage you enough, if you weren't here to receive the message this morning from Brooke, download it from our website. Even even if you were here this morning, it's a message that you could go back to a number of times and still be pulling more from. It's pretty raw in places, as is Brooke, if you know him. But it's real, and it speaks from a real and deep journey with the Lord over many years and what God has been revealing to him through that time. And it's a message born out of a lot of experience, uh, and it's a, a message which challenged me, someone who's known him and walked with him for a lot of the last 15 years. So, And there's the heart of what we're looking at at the moment in that message as well. So please download that message when you get home. The reality is that there are a number of things that we at The Rock and the church around the world has been getting wrong. And our misunderstandings have pulled us away from God's presence and held us back from the advancement of his kingdom and have painted a picture of him that the world is not interested in. Which is interesting because when Jesus was walking the earth in in flesh, in preaching, he was surrounded by crowds. They followed him everywhere. They wouldn't leave him alone because what he brought was so attractive to them. Now, the word says there was nothing about him physically that was appealing. But the message that he brought, broken, sinful people couldn't keep away from it. Whereas the church today seems to, by and large, attract religious people. They just can't keep away. They love it. They love what we have. So there's obviously some disconnect between what Jesus was bringing and what the contemporary church is. So, what we need in the figurative language of Jesus' parables is new wine and new wineskins. And by that, I mean new perspectives, new values, new truth. But when I say new, I don't mean new-new. I don't mean new as in something which we've just made up, or God just for the first time in the history of humankind downloaded this new truth that had never existed before. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say new, I actually mean 2,000 years old. Because what we're receiving now kind of isn't that new It just seems new because we just didn't see it before or we weren't living in it. You following me? New wine is made from pretty old grapes. The new was new when Jesus brought it 2,000 years ago. And it's new now because we haven't been living in it and the truth of it pretty much at all for the last, well, I don't know. It seemed like the early disciples kind of started to get hold of it and live in it. And then, within two hundred years, it was gone. We want to claim that back. Okay, we're not reinventing anything. We're not inventing anything. We're not making up anything new. We want to reclaim what God has had for us the whole time. So this new wine is still sitting on the shelf. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. We just want to go pick it off the shelf and start drinking it. You know, I want to drink some good wine with me. Hi, uh, my name is Clay McGregor, welcome to The Rock uh, tonight, um, how are we doing, we good, we good, okay, good, long day, been out in the sun a bit, all right, I'll, I'll just keep talking and um, if anything sounds reasonable, let me know about it, all right, all right, okay, well it looks like all the wine's for me, I'm fine, all right. Okay, God is not calling us to invent something new for today. He's calling us to take hold of the new covenant that Jesus revealed to the world and we forgot. We lost our way and he's now calling us back to that. That is the season that this church is in. That is the season that the church all over the world has been called into, reclaiming what he had for us all along. You might have heard, terms become, you know, uh, loud and alive again, like revival, like we are in a revival season. Revive, revival, what it means is live again. It is restoring the life that God brought to the church back in the day. He wants to bring that life, the life that the apostles carried, the life that the early church carried from Pentecost on, filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in, in, in signs and miracles and wonders. Walking in the love, the peace, the grace of God. That is the revival we're talking about. Reclaiming what God has already brought. But we've somehow walked away from. So it's not really that new at all. Let's refresh ourselves on, uh, on the scripture uh, that this parable comes from. Uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we'll read from from verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, or Levi. and He was sitting at the tax collector's booth, and Jesus said, Follow me. And Matthew got up, and he followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Uh, tax collectors back then were seen as traitors who were taking all the money uh, off off the people, taking a lot of it for themselves, and then passing on the rest to their foreign oppressors, the Romans. Tax collectors were just seen as the worst scum. But this is who Jesus is dining with. He's dining with the tele- tax collectors and the sinful people. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, "Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners?" On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved through this parable Jesus was addressing the religious spirit of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist they were locked into an old paradigm an old way of thinking about things and because of that they couldn't see the light of truth that Jesus was bringing it confused them it even angered them because when it came down to it they didn't really know God and because they didn't know God They didn't know his word Even though they could recite it from memory Book after book, chapter after chapter They had it in their heads But not the understanding in their hearts So despite what they thought they knew They really knew nothing So God sent the people prophets The Pharisees didn't make up these problems It had been the same problem that the nation of Israel and Judea had had forever and God sent them um, prophets to try to bring them back to what his heart really was. Prophets like Isaiah, who, said in, um, who prophesied in Isaiah 29, the Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. The prophets came, they brought prophecies like that, but the people still didn't learn. And I don't know how much we've learned either. We need to get back to school, or more accurately, back to the feet of Jesus, and rediscover who the Father really is, who we really are, and then what his kingdom really is. Because when we find that truth and allow that truth to shape our reality, well, that changes everything. So who wants to change? Who wants to be different? A better man, a better woman, a better child of God. Does this make you want to do? Yeah, I'm pretty keen. The question that Brooke's message landed at in the end this morning is how do we change? Not how do we change the church or how do we change society? But how do we change? How do we change ourselves? Brooke's suggestion was that Ultimately, we don't change ourselves. We can't. It's God who changes us. It's his spirit that that transforms us. Now, Brooke didn't take us any further to really unpack how that happens and why it often appears like there is no change. But my conviction has come to be that significant change has already occurred within every single one of us. I don't know what you, what you thought the change, the transformation in your life would look like and what it would feel like. Maybe you had an idea there would be some kind of feeling. But right through scripture, God just documents it, nails it down and declares over us that we are new, that we are changed. See, before we were children of darkness, but now we're children of light. Before, we were spiritual orphans, but now we have a heavenly father, and with that, an inheritance. Before, we were slaves to sin, but now we are bound to righteousness through his spirit. The truth is, we have already changed in the most powerful and significant ways. He has given us a new identity. It says in Second Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. We have changed. We are someone completely different. God has transformed us. We're not living like it yet, though. And there's a difference. We're not living free because I don't think we know what freedom really means. I'm not sure if you've seen uh, the movie Shawshank Redemption. Well, there's a sad story that's in the middle of, of, this, of this movie, a sad story of this really old guy who's been in prison for pretty much all of his adult life. And f- at, uh, near the end of the story, he's, uh, he's released from prison. And he goes out, to, ends up in this halfway house um, on his own, and he kills himself. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler for the movie, but if you haven't seen Shawshank Redemption yet, well, what's wrong with you? But this old man kills himself after he's released from prison, the prison that he spent his whole life in, because the prison was the only thing that he knew. The prison gave him security. It gave him a sense of identity. And so when the doors were opened and he was released, the world that he came into was foreign to him. He had no place in there, no sense of identity. He was free, but he didn't. But he Didn't know what freedom meant and how to live free. The only life that he could imagine was a life that he had known. And so if he couldn't have that, well then he didn't want any life at all. He was institutionalized. The institution of the prison became his whole reality. And he couldn't see or live past it. Wonder if you've ever seen that in your own life or in people in the church. We've lived, you know, a good part of our lives. In sin, without God, making our own way. But then God opens the door, calls us into his kingdom. And at last, finally we're free. We're free, liberated from everything. The shackles of sin are taken off us. Condemnation is no longer on us. We're no longer slaves. We're sons. We are daughters of the living God. But we don't understand what freedom really means. We don't know what to do with it. And so we end up going back to the only thing we've ever known the old life. Because the new is almost too much for us. The change has already happened. The reality is now new, free, sun, air. But we live like we're still in prison. So my conviction has become that we have got to break free from the old wineskin that is keeping us from receiving the grace and destiny that God has for us. That grace is an intimacy with him and an anointing of His Spirit and power, an anointing like none we have ever known before. And that destiny is to be His ambassadors, agents of transformation, that would see Wellington and our nation, Aotearoa, New Zealand, become annexed into the Kingdom of God. It sound like it's pretty big, pretty exciting. I'm not making that up. I don't really carry much of a prophetic grace. These, though, are the prophetic words that have been spoken over this house. I'm just parroting them to you. These are the words that we've been receiving over the last couple of years and are getting now in more frequency. God is birthing something in this church that is going to transform cities and nations. And I'm excited to be a part of that. But sometimes when my faith starts to dip... I think, how are we ever going to get from where we are to there? Because it seems like we've got a long way to go. Now, what that statement really is, that's just a reflection of what's happening in me. This is something that I got from, from Brooke's message this morning as well, and I've had confirmed in a lot of ways. We're not called to change the church. And we could, you could even argue that we're not really called to change society. We are called to see a change happen in ourselves. This church changes when we change. That's the reality. When we become something different, our church, our community, which is the sum of ourselves, that becomes something different. And when we as a church become something different and the body of Christ in this country becomes something different, guess what happens to the country? We become salt and light. We preserve, we save, and we bring flavor Grace to the nation. The nation becomes something different. We lead our nation into an encounter with the living God. But you've got to reverse engineer it. Step one. Us. Step one. Step one's me. Before I preach anything, I have got to to change. Which I'm seeing more and more is recognizing the work he has already done in me. Claiming it and living it. Before we can see these triumphant prophecies fulfilled, a few things need to change. We need a new wineskin, because the old one won't just do. Now when we talk about new and changes, this is something that the elders are wrestling with at this time, and and we'll be looking at over the summer as we look to lead the church forward. But certainly I've been seeing part of the picture is these three areas, these three questions, uh, and the truth of these will be a major part of who we become, a major part of the new wineskin that shapes this church. Who is God, number one? Who is God? Who am I? And what is the kingdom of God? Should, uh, if you've... Using a smartphone or have got your Bible on your iPad or looking up Bible Gateway at home. You should do a search through the Gospels. How many times Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like. Or in another way to say it, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven because he was ushering something in, and it was something that he had to keep driving home to us and hitting from different angles because it was so important that we came to understand what his kingdom is because we are going to be bringing it. When we know the answer to these questions, who is God, who am I, and what is the kingdom of God, and when we can abide in their truth, then we will have the capacity to receive the new wine that God has for us. Okay, I want to I wanna see if, if we can really just get our head around this this analogy, this uh, this illustration of the wineskin. Okay, uh, wine wasn't brewed in wooden casks like it is now. Uh, wine, grape juice was stored in wineskins, skins usually of goats. So they would tie up a goat skin, uh, make sure there's no leaks in it, and that's a that's a fresh goat skin that's still very pliable, it's quite soft. I'd pour the um, the grape juice into it, and then the grape juice would, as grapes do, it would ferment, and it would turn from grape juice into wine. Now, because it was a soft, new, pliable skin, this uh, wine skin could expand through the fermentation process. It wouldn't burst. It would be able to contain and hold the the grape juice that had been poured in. It It could hold onto it. If, however, you used an old skin, a skin that had been used before, well, these things, well, they were wet, and then they dry. They become brittle, and they crack. So when new wine is poured into it, and it ferments and expands, it cracks, holes come up all over it, and the the wine goes everywhere. They're useless. You can only use wineskins once. So the the parallel, the, the, the transfer over to us is that if we're operating under an old paradigm a different way of thinking, that was for a different time. This is a time before Christ. As God now tries to pour out his spirit on us, we can't handle it because we're operating under the wrong set of values, the wrong perspective. We're seeing God completely wrong. And so we don't know him. We don't know what he's trying to do. We don't understand the scriptures because we don't know him. We don't know what to do with his power or what to do in the world because we don't know him. But if we can get our wineskin right, get our perspective, get our framework, get our values right, well, then we can receive his word. We can receive his prophetic word, his revelation. We can receive his power, and we know what to do with it. And I've come to believe that it all starts, everything starts, with who is God. God, if you weren't aware is the source of everything. He is the source of all truth. Everything is defined by Him. The way you think about God determines how you look at everything. It seems like a lot of Christians have read the Bible and got a particular view on who God is from that. And it seems to be pretty close to the picture of God that the Pharisees got. Will you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Luke 15. It's another parable. I think this is a really cool illustration of just getting it wrong. Luke 15, from verse 11. Jesus... Continued and said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between his two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth on wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him a thing. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. There's exclamation points in there. Sometimes we miss it, though. We miss how disrespectful he was to his father there. How fired up he was. How indignant he was at the injustice. Because his God was father, our God, was being so forgiving and merciful and generous and gracious. And how dare you be so generous and gracious to people that I don't like and don't agree with because of what they're doing. You must punish them. You must kick them out. You must send them to hell because that's what they deserve. That's the picture he had of what his father should be like. It's the picture that Bible-believing Christians, a lot of, seem to have as well. This is, this is a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story about grace, but it's also a story about identity. In this story, when the younger son finally hit rock bottom, it says in verse 17 that, He came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, he thought of the benevolence of his father, the benevolence, the goodness that he showed to his hired servants. And he thought, wow, if he treats them like that, well, my father is really good. So he decided to return to his father and beg for forgiveness. And hopefully, because his father was so good, he'd be allowed to rejoin the household uh, as a servant. Coming to his senses, he only really went so far Because he didn't really get a, a proper understanding of who his dad really was He'd forgotten who his father was And in that he'd forgotten who he was He made the mistake of thinking that his sin changed everything Changed who he was And changed the way that his father thought about him That's the assumption that he made He made the mistake of thinking that his personal righteousness was his father's biggest concern. His picture of his father was a good but hard man, firm but fair. In his understanding, his father's grace only went so far. He hoped his father would take him back, but he had no hope whatsoever that he'd return as a son. He gave up all inheritance and all rights. That's how he thought it would work because that's the understanding he had of his father. And he was not, obviously, the only one who thought that. The oldest son, the one who had not run off for wild living, also did not think his younger brother deserved to return with honor. He judged his brother even harder than the lost son judged himself. His father's grace angered him, and in it he revealed What he truly thought of his father All those years slaving Not disobeying Doing what I'm supposed to And the whole time building up resentment The oldest son worked like a slave And was obedient in the way that a slave is But that was the identity that he took on himself He saw his father as a master Not as a loving father And so there was no relationship. Obedience without relationship, that's religion. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were trapped in. And sadly, 2,000 years later, too much of God's precious church is trapped in that too. So once again, we need a new wineskin, friends. And that wineskin is built from the truth that God is not angry with us. He is not waiting to judge and punish us. He has no condemnation for us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing heaven above, earth below, that can separate us from the love of God. Somehow we have this very distorted picture of who he is. Now this in no way no way negates God's abhorrence of sin. But it's his grace goes beyond that. And Jesus' death on the cross dealt to that. God has a wonderful plan for us to come into the likeness of Christ, and to be wearing his righteousness and living in it. So sin is sin, and it's still there, but it's not what God sees when he looks at us. And so we have to stop looking at him, thinking that's what he's thinking. We're scared of him because of this whole sin thing. We define our relationship through sin. You know, if we've had a good week, we haven't been naughty, well, then we can be close to God this week. God, oh no, if we mess up, well then we can't be close with him. Sin comes to define our relationship with God. I I just want you to, to hear that again. Is sin defining your relationship with God? Does that sound like it should be that way? Does it sound like sin should have the power to influence your relationship with God? Do you have this idea that maybe his grace can deal to that? And even sin can't get between us and him? Despite the fact that he hates it. He hates sin, but he loves us so much that he can actually look past it. So we start to see him like that. It really does change the whole thing. It just sets us up for an intimate relationship. Brooke shared it this morning, and it just has stuck with me. Just thinking about the woman caught in adultery and the, the way she was treated. Firstly, by the crowd, people fired up in religious fervor. Fired up in what they thought was their own righteousness and their own sense of right and wrong. And they were about to execute her. They were about to stone her publicly. about to kill her by throwing rocks at her until she was dead. That's how fired up they were. Fired up in God's word. But then God himself turns up And it's his word It's his law It's his righteousness It's his standard He was the one that dictated what it was But he comes in And his response Is If no one else here condemns you I don't condemn you either Is there anyone here to condemn you? No, they've all gone He pointed out their own hypocrisy, their own sin And then he gave her grace Grace go, sin no more. That's the heart of the Father. When we think about God, we need to think about that. That's how he deals with sinful people. We need a new wineskin. God has not got condemnation for us, his people. He's got grace. He's got blessing. Somehow, this concept of grace has become, it's become too much for us. So we, I don't know, it's like we feel like we're too corrupted to really engage with him properly. And so we conjure up another picture of God for ourselves, one that does make sense. And what makes sense for us is sin, bad, God hates Get out religious works, God appreciates He likes that. come close. we settle for unlimited legalism rather than unlimited grace because it just it 's easier to understand, and so God in our heads, is a judge, not a father he 's a slave master, not a friend, and he 's just angry, and the God that a lot of contemporary churches preach is angry. The God that is portrayed in the media by churches is angry all the time. He's angry at the sinners in the world. That just doesn't seem to add up for me as I look at how Jesus dealt with people. He got angry at people's religious hypocrisy. For sinners, he had compassion and grace. Jesus said in John 14 verse 9, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus modeled for us the heart of the Father. And that heart, that father, is love. When we sing, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, this is the father that we are singing to. A loving father, a generous father, a good father, a compassionate father, a merciful father. Yes, he is righteous and holy and just and powerful. But these characteristics in no way compromise His love. In fact, they are made perfect in His love. When we, when we sing Our Father, I love the song. When we sing Our Father, this awesome rendering of the Lord's Prayer, we are claiming our own identity as well. Our Father. You know what that makes me? My Father? That makes me a son. That's how I can call the king of heaven, my father, because I am his child. I am adopted into his family. I am his son. And when I get that, when I understand it and start to live in that, that changes everything. Suddenly I have authority in the kingdom. Suddenly I have destiny. I have purpose. I have inheritance. I have self-worth. I don't know. I probably have preached it a number of times from here and talked about you know, how worthless I am you know, without God and how I'm nothing. I don't want to use that language anymore because I just, it's just too negative. I'm, I am someone special. I am a son of the living God, a prince of the kingdom of heaven. That is who I am, and that's how he sees me. And if he sees me that way, that's just it, that's reality. God doesn't have opinions, he just has truth. So yeah, I've got a a pretty good self-esteem now. I feel pretty good about myself. Even when things aren't going that well and I'm stuffing up, that doesn't change my identity. I can always know I can go back to the Father and be received as a son. And he will run to me. He will run to me and throw his robe around me. He'll put his ring on my finger. He'll kill the fattened calf. He will always think about me like that. It feels good to think that someone loves me that much. Doesn't it? When we sing our father, we are claiming our birthright. Our position in his kingdom. In his household. At his table. As his children. As his sons and daughters. As his heirs. As princes and princesses of the kingdom of heaven. Because that's who we are got to get the theology right though we have got to know the god of heaven we have got to know who we are in him and we've got to know the truth of the kingdom he has commissioned us to extend to change this world the church needs to change and for the church to change we need to change and for us to change we need to own the change that has already taken place we need to take on our identity As sons and daughters of God, we need to recognise it. We need to own it. We need to start living in it. As I was pulling the last this message together, I just can be that this this message and the ones a number of ones we've had this month really are just an introduction to some things that we're going to be getting into into some serious detail because we want to get serious about this. We want to get serious about who we are. We want to get very serious about who God is and come to a right understanding of that because he has become so distorted and we want to understand what his kingdom about what is this kingdom that he has called us to co-labor with him to grow tonight I want you to be encouraged that God wants you to know him he's not going to hide his nature from you and he wants you to know yourself. He wants you to know who he made you to be. And Being that God is eternal and all-knowing. Sometimes I, I, I like the meditation that God dreamed me up before the creation of the world. He kind of planned it all out and as he kind of conceived of these ideas he had an idea he had a little dream and that dream was clay it might be a nightmare to you but he, he likes his dream and he dreamed me up and in his dream he could see me what I would look like what I would sound like the way I would think the way I would move just everything he dreamed it up and he was like yep we'll make one of those I was his idea. And he had a perfect time in history that he wanted me to come into reality. And so he kind of made everything come into alignment so that I could be born. Little Clay McGregor. And he dreamed you up as well. You are a dream he had that he wanted to make a reality. But I'm only partway through the dream. I haven't come into the fulfillment of who he dreamed up yet. But thankfully, he who began a good work in me is faithful to carry it out to completion to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is, he dreamed me up, he created me, he formed me, and knit me together in my mother's womb. And throughout this life, he is continuing to craft me and shape me into a prince, into a powerful man of God. And that is my destiny in Him, and I'm okay with the fact that He has something similar for you. I'm happy to share some of the power. Turns out there's a, there's a lot to go around. God's blessings are limitless, and He's calling us all to something special. So, um, yeah, Amen. But yeah, I want to. We're going to go on to speak a lot more about this. We'll look at a, a number, of, n- number of other scriptures that help us get a better understanding of who God is, of who we are, uh, and what his kingdom is. But I guess maybe tonight the meditation I'd love you to carry away is is that the, the work has already been done. You are something very different than you were. And the more we can come to understand who he has made us to be and just live in that reality... I think it's going to turn a whole lot of things around, but it's like our eyes are blinded to see who we really are. So, so when I talk about you know, God doing a mighty work in us, I just I do believe that it's so much of it's already happened. And so the more we can just see that revelation, well, it's just going to blow us away. So uh, in a minute, I want us to spend some time uh, declaring the words and the sentiment of the Lord's Prayer, our Father. And as we do... My prayer is that we come more and more to know the nature of our heavenly Father and our identity in him but i wanna, i want to wonder if we could just stand and, and maybe pray together just just for that father god i want to i want to thank you just th- even before we were born it started with you you dreamed us up you had an idea that was us and you you brought it into fruition you saw us all formed in our in our mother's wombs we were all born so that we could come to know you Lord and you have moved heaven and earth and done everything possible to restore us to right relationship with you even to sending your son to earth to die on a cross And we recognize that, Lord, and we lay claim to that sacrifice tonight. But, Lord, tonight as we lift this song to declare you as our Father, our Heavenly Father, the King of Heaven, I pray you'd help us to see ourselves as your children, sons and daughters of the living God. I pray we'd see ourselves the way that you see us, that we'd be able to see each other the way that you see everyone here. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to see you for who you really are. Every falsehood, every distortion, Lord, of you and your nature, I pray, Lord, that that would just be stripped away from us. And as we open the word and search you out in there, I pray that we'd be able to see your word and see your heart, Lord, with your eyes. Holy Spirit, lead us back to Jesus that Jesus can once again show us the Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name.